it, please. So the captain of the ship looked into the dark night and saw faint lights in the distance. Immediately he told a signalman to send a message, alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angered that his command had been ignored. So he sent a second message that said, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north, I am seaman third class Jones. Immediately the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear it would instill in this obstinate subordinate. And he said, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a battleship. Then the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. (laughs) There's something very difficult inside of us that makes us want to say, no, I will not submit to your authority. No, I will not do it your way. I want to do it my way. Don't you dare tell me what to do on and on and on why is it so difficult for us to submit to someone else's authority? This morning, as we read our text, we'll find, find it in James chapter four. If you have your Bibles with you um, in this text this morning, we're talking about submission. And um, really, this text is kind of a culmination of the first three chapters, and it, it kind of addresses one large issue. And the issue is submission. And so I want to today, I don't want you just to hear the text today or just understand the words as good as that is. Um, what, I, what I'm praying and I was praying in my office this morning, this, I, I pray that that this word would get inside of you. I pray that this word about submission would um, would be something that transforms you, something that you embrace. So as we read this text, I'd I'd like you to read it with different kind of ears. Uh, As you hear this, instead of thinking of the audience that James wrote to over 2000 years ago, think of um, what this text is saying to you and what God wants you to hear from it. So let's read the first uh, 10 verses of James chapter four. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. This is very, very difficult language. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. 
That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this next verse, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Well, obviously, uh, James here is not subtle. (laughs) Uh, James does not speak with a silver tongue. James is not interested in making believers feel better about themselves, nor is he inclined to say, just do your best and that's good enough. You don't hear any of those words from James. In this context, and you'll remember the context from weeks past, um, 45 A.D. approximately under Emperor Claudius, and the bullets are flying and the bombs are falling and Christians are being carried away on stretchers and other believers are crying out, what are we supposed to do? How are we to survive in this kind of world? Now these life and death questions, James asks and presents to us as well. And he doesn't back down one inch from the challenges faced by Christians in a world that is ruled by evil and opposed to God. The book of James is about an enormous contrast. Two different ways to live. That contrast is about someone who is living in Christ Jesus. Someone who has living faith, faith that is alive within them. And someone else who has dead faith. The question James asks all the time is this, will your faith sustain you through the trials and persecution or will it be like a vapor? Will it just vanish when the first question is unanswered or the first conflict arises? Will it simply go away like the seed that is planted on the rocky soil? We're going to look at these contrasts and look at the ones that we've been looking at throughout These first weeks, let me share with you how all of this kind of comes to a head today in today's message. Now, we've been looking at character traits and what does it look like for a person to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? What does it look like for a person to live fully, abundantly, joyfully, faithfully in Christ? What does that look like? And so throughout these weeks, James has shown this contrast over and over again, a yin and yang, kind of a push and pull. Uh, The first week, he contrasted between those who are tempted and those who uh, avoid temptation. Those who yield to temptation and those who avoid temptation. Everybody's tempted. Uh, Don't think that that's a sin. Temptation is part of who we are. But um, it's those who see that designer bait that floats in front of your nose and it it looks delicious and it it, it smells delicious and, mm, oh man, that would be so good. And some people believe that that bait is what? Food. And so they eat it and they swallow it. And in in James chapter one, it says when that uh, that that temptation is swallowed, it becomes part of you. It, 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 It gives birth to sin and sin. And this is an interesting phrase in first uh, in James one and sin, when it is fully developed, gives birth to death. Isn't that an interesting phrase? And we talked about that several weeks ago. So so the contrast is between that person which recognizes bait as bait and someone else who sees it as food 
as that which will nourish them and it will fill them and satisfy them. Then the second week we talked about the contrast between listening and doing. Between revelation, we listen to the Word of God and say, oh, that's interesting, I like that. It's the Word of God, I believe it, it's in my head. The difference between revelation, knowing something, chapter 1, the second part of chapter 1, even the demons know the Word of God, right number. So revelation is good, but it's not enough. Revelation is wonderful. We know something, but it must be transformation. The word getting from our heads to our hearts. The contrast there, living faith and death. And then the third week we talked about the contrast of showing favoritism, whether we show favoritism or not. Uh, someone who shows favoritism uh, judges somebody on the outside and they, they, they lift up the chin. Remember that? They lift up the face saying, you matter because you look good, you have money, you have a good profession, uh, you're the right color skin, you have the right job or something. We lift up the face, yet yeah, you matter, but the others don't matter so much. And the contrast there, of course, is those who uh, lift up the face of someone or those who uh, show mercy because they have received mercy. And then the next week, the contrast of living faith versus dead faith. We talked about Christian zombies. Living faith produces something which dead faith cannot produce. Living faith produces something. And that something, James says, is good works. That something is the fruit of the Spirit. So dead faith cannot produce that. If you have dead faith in you, you cannot produce those good works, but living faith does. And the next week, we contrasted the tongue. Oh, this is one some, several of you told me. That, that's, you're meddling, Pastor Duane. That's not very nice. Contrast the tongue. The words that give life and words that bring death. Um, marvel at the power of the tongue, we said, to set the course of a life for good or for evil. And that the tongue has the ability to give both good life and evil. And that's a problem for all of us. And then last week, Pastor David talked about the contrast with integrity. Those who are wise and unwise. And uh, those who have godly integrity are doing life for an audience of one. And those who do life differently are doing integrity for an audience of many. We put all this into a picture that is the bottom line for James. And it's a contrast. And and when you leave today, I hope that you leave with this this word picture in mind. So here's, here's a person who is standing tall in Jesus. A person who has the life of Jesus in them. It courses through them. First John talks about, uh, and I don't want to be indelicate, but I don't think there's children in here. The, the word, the Greek word is spermata. And, and, and the life of God literally is planted inside you. Okay, And that life takes root and it grows in you. And you remember the mirror miracle from a few years ago. And that, that life inside of you is coursing through you. And you stand tall in God. You stand up in the Lord and, and, and you're strong and Jesus is alive in you and his life is coming through you. That's what I would call vertical living. And James says that's one way to live your life. But there is a, a contrast to that, a contrast to vertical living. And that is a person who, and now please hear this, a person who is bent to the earth. A person who, is, who gets down and is bent to the earth. A person who is groveling and scraping and looking at the world, the earth, and, and, and finding, and I've come to believe that that which I need to satisfy me, that which I need will, will make me alive and, and well, I can find that in the earth. I will extract from the world that which the world will provide me, and that provision is life and 
and all of the things that God wants. And, but, but the contrast that James gives is that that person who is bent towards the earth, um, they are uh, scratching and clawing and, and eating and consuming that which the world cannot provide, which is satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose. Constantly consuming bait. Constantly consuming bait and convincing themselves that it's food. Desperately trying to find nourishment and meaning from the earth, from the world. And I would call that bentness. So the contrast and putting all these weeks together, the contrast is between the person who stands up in Christ, is fully alive and fully awakened to Jesus, and that person which is bent to the earth, trying to find nourishment and fulfillment from which the earth provides. And then that person that is bent to the earth, when something doesn't satisfy, what usually happens, what usually, and James says this in chapter 2, what happens is that, well, they just dig a little deeper. They try a little harder. Well, if this much money I can gain from the earth gives me this level of satisfaction, then I'll just dig for more. Or a different relationship, or a different sexual experience. I'll just dig for, and eventually I will be satisfied. That's the conflict. That's the contrast. Standing tall in Jesus and that person which is bent to the earth. King David, in his life, like most of us, experienced both. Uh, David, as a boy, was a man of faith, a boy of faith, and yeah, you know the story. He killed a Goliath, and uh, uh, af- when Saul was not being a very good king, God said, I have a king that's going to really matter, and his name's David. And he said of David, he's a man, what? After my own heart. <laughs> Here's this young King David, a man after my own heart. And so David ruled well and ruled justly, and there were many victories. But then, after a while, his power got to him and his eyes and his head got to him. And instead of standing tall in God, David bent to the earth. And he looked at Bathsheba and he lusted after her. And he had men killed just for his own purpose. And he lied and he distracted and he deceived and he committed adultery and over and over and over again. And he was gathering from the earth that which he thought would fill him. And it didn't. And then we find later, after Nathan confronted him, that David is on his knees in Psalm 51 and begging to God that he would forgive him and begging for forgiveness. And after that, you know what the text says in 2 Samuel 17? It says that um, he was lifted up. As an irony there, isn't there? An irony that when you're bent to the earth and you're trying to satisfy yourself from that which comes from the earth, that and when you repent of that and when you turn away from that, that uh, you literally are raised up and standing tall in Christ. That's the contrast, the vertical life versus the bent life. And James says that this contrast is seen throughout our lives as conflict. Ceaseless conflict, in fact. And the question is that James asks is, what or who do I submit to? Now, you might say, well, I don't want to submit to anybody. Well, that's really not an option. <laughs> the Bible says clearly in Romans 6.16 this, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's not up on the screen. I, I'm sorry, I should have told uh, the PowerPoint uh, that uh, that's a new verse. But, but, but here's what that verse says, Paul says, is that, uh, don't be deceived. You're, you're a slave to somebody. Either you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you're a slave to obedience to Jesus, which leads to righteousness. So it's not a matter of whether or not you're a slave. You are a slave. 
You choose. That's what human beings do. We choose to submit to something. Why is it we don't choose to submit to God? Well, that's the contrast that we look at, and that contrast looks like a conflict. Conflict with myself, conflict with others, conflict with God. Let's look at, first of all, the conflict that we have with ourselves. And this is defined by Paul in Romans 7. You know the text, some of you. Let me read that for you. And you'll recognize this as I read this. Oh, that's me. That's that inner conflict. That's that yin and yang. That's that push-pull inside of me. Listen to these words. But I need something more, Paul writes. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. That's a person who is bending to the earth and trying to fulfill themselves, satisfy themselves with the thing that the world provides. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but when I do, any, I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Does that ring a bell to you? <laughs> if it doesn't, you're not, you're not alive in Christ. If you're not feeling that conflict, that yin and yang, that means you've never accepted Christ because you're just going the way of the world. You're just going that direction. But if those of you who belong to Jesus, you feel that all the time, that conflict inside of you. I want to stand tall in Jesus, and yet I still have somehow believed that I can gather satisfaction from the earth. That's what the text is talking about. We feel that struggle. We feel that relationship. Well, do we submit... To God, or we do, do we submit to the earth? The analogy that I want to use this morning, I hope you will hear and understand. It's the analogy of marriage. And throughout Scripture, a relationship with God is used often as, uh, it's described as a metaphor or analogy using marriage. So let me use that for just a moment. In marriage, there's a couple ways to approach it. You can decide that you are, uh, we just had, um, uh, Stephen Terry Hill's son, Mark, was married a week ago. And uh, uh, Mark and Stephanie, his bride now, they are both absolutely, they're both Christians, they're absolutely committed to marriage. They both understand what it means to submit to each other and to submit to this thing that we call marriage. It's actually a, a thing. It's a, a covenant from God. And they, they, they've decided to submit each other and uh, to each other and to this thing we call marriage. And they are, they're pressing into that and, and standing tall in that. Let's, let's use that. So, so that's one thing. So we do this as Christians, where we want to come to God fully um, as a bride. We are his bride and we stand fully in him. But the contrast is this. Someone who sees marriage as, um, well, I'm just going to marry him for the money. Okay, so here's what this looks like. So I'm, I'm going to marry uh, 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 Hugh Hefner. He's 80-some years old. Uh, author, originator of Playboy magazine. How many marriages? I think it's five or six. Anybody know? That's, I think it's five or six marriages. And every marriage has been with somebody 20 to 60 years his junior. Every marriage. Now, these girls, and that's what they are, and I, I don't want to be too pejorative because when you look at girls that end up in that industry, almost 100% of them were abused. So let's, let's show some grace here. So, but these girls that marry this guy, the most recent one, I think she's 30-some years old, and he's in his 80s. And you look at them as a couple, and you say, now those people are committed to marriage. 
They're committed to the intimacy, communication, the, the power, and the submission, mutual submission. In marriage. No, you don't say that at all. You say, she's marrying him for the money. She's marrying him for the prestige. She's marrying him to see what she can get. And as soon as something doesn't go well, like maybe he can't perform, or maybe he's, he dies or something, as soon as he does something like that, I'm going to bolt and take a couple mil with me. Now, let's bring that back to our contrast today. How many Christians marry for the money? How many Christians say, Jesus, I want you as my Savior? Because having a Savior is really good. You can put that in the bank. Having a Savior means my sins are forgiven, I'm going to heaven, and that's awesome. And it's good, and it's wonderful, and, and God wants to give us that. But if we're just marrying for the money, if we're just marrying for the goodies, watch out. The first sign of trouble, the first prayer unanswered, the first thing that happens in Japan that we call, you know, a God thing, you know, the first sign something, so, oh, I'm, you know, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm quitting the marriage. God's just not keeping up. He's not providing me the things that I thought he would provide me, money, prestige, power, on and on and on. Now, God says, I don't want you to come to me for the money. Don't come to me as a savior. But remember, come to me as Lord. A mutual submission. How, how does it work that we're mutually submitting to God? It's very simple. We submit to God. How did he submit to us? Well, he died on the cross for your sins. Is there any greater submission than that? Is there any greater love than that? So God says, I want you to understand that you have a choice, really a contrast. How are you going to... God does not want to, for you to marry him for his money, for his goodies, for his eternal life, for things that he can provide for you. He wants you to marry him. He wants you to be his bride. He wants that intimate, passionate, subservient, loving relationship with every Christian. That's what James is talking about, that inner conflict between do I come to God so that I can get stuff? Or do I come to God literally with my heart and my will and my gifts in my hands say, Lord, this belongs to to you. We do this and God weeps. We show that we marry him for his money. Questions unanswered, a prayer unmet, and then we say, well, you're not the husband I thought you would be. And we simply leave. How many people in the world said, I tried Christianity and I just quit? And I'll tell you, every one of them had the same thing. They married God for the money. And God says, I want you to be my bride. Move on to the next mood-altering substance, the next relationship, because God didn't give me what he promised to give me. I thought it was going to be a good deal, but it wasn't. We, we kind of treat God like a two-year-old. You, you know what I mean by a two-year-old. My, Sherry and I, when our kids were younger, we learned about toddlers the hard way. Uh, deny them anything, and you will hear about it, Right? Uh, temper tantrum time, screaming, kicking, making life miserable for the parents. Uh, it prompted me to, a few years ago, to think about writing a book, writing a book for parents of toddlers, a book that would say, this is how you keep your home peaceful and tranquil during the terrible twos. And I would have entitled the book, uh, Give Them Everything They Want. I mean, give them everything they want. You know, just, just give them what they want because we don't want it. Isn't that the way we are sometimes when we come to God? 
God, give me this. I'm so sad and I'm so unhappy and I don't have what I want and I don't have, I was just whining and, and everything. But God does not give in and God does not say, I'll give you everything you want because what you want is not what you need. That's a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Marry God for money or marry Him for intimacy. Bend towards the earth or stand up tall in Christ. Then there's the conflict with other people. Have you ever felt like your life, you're kind of going in the wrong direction? Like, like you're going one way and everybody else is going the other way. There's these conflicts constantly when that happens. L- let me show you a little snapshot of what that looks like. Let's take a look. Hear the police officer turn the car off, and he said just when he's leaving the car, you couldn't hear it very well. But he said, "Now you be careful when you pull out." So he turned on the signal, and boom. Well, have you ever felt like that? <laughs> like you're going the opposite direction, and it just makes a mess out of everything. I think we've all felt that way. Now, this text has an amazing thought in it that I want to share with you, and this is around the idea of conflict with others. Now, listen, let me read uh, verses two to four once again. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, again, very difficult language, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now let me explain that text a little bit by focusing on the word friendship. The word comes from the Greek word philia. You recognize that word. It's uh, the word for friendship, uh, Philadelphia, you know, city of brotherly love, all of that. But philia, but what that means, it's a much richer meaning than just friendship. It means that you, you embrace someone or something. It means that you have, and this is a, a key phrase, write this down in your sermon notes. It means you have a settled affection. You have settled on an affection towards someone 
or something. You're not just struggling. It's like you picture this person now bending down on the earth once again and trying to embrace the earth and and all of that which it provides and trying to satisfy themselves on the things of the earth. And what it means is that a person who becomes a friend with the world means that they have a, a subtle affection towards the earth. They've embraced it. Now, the word world in Greek, cosmos, it's not material creation or people. That's not what the word means. But a world or realm of sin. So we're not talking about the physical dirt. We're talking about the world or realm of sin, which is controlled by Satan and a a dominant philosophy organized against God. That describes our world really well, I think. A dominant philosophy organized against God. That's the world. A person that embraces that, a person that has settled their affection on that, that cannot be a friend of God. That is a friend of the world. I have um, my former brother-in-law, Dave. Uh, When Sherry and I were first married, our closest friends were my sister and his husband. We had similar goals, and David felt he was called to be a youth pastor. I was called to be a pastor. We both served as youth pastors, and... We spent all time together. We were just the best friends. And when we went off to seminary, our paths kind of went different directions. But, but over the years, uh, David began to um, make a lot of money. And he began to embrace the world. Now, again, the world is not the earth. There's nothing wrong. The earth is just earth. It's dirt. But embrace that which he has come to believe will satisfy him. And um, he settled his affection on the earth. He settled his affection on the earth. Bentness, feeding on and being nurtured by that which will never satisfy. David and, his, and my sister Colleen got a divorce and now he's remarried and making a lot of money, but there's never a thought of God. There's never a thought of ministry that he embraced so clearly as a young man. He settled his affection on the world. That's a danger. And James says, you need to hear this. For those of you who have decided that you can bend to the earth and satisfy yourself with something that the earth, you think the earth can provide, but only God can provide. Be very, very careful. Things will change. And it happens to every one of us. And so you're bent to the earth and you're feeding yourself and And yet you're not getting satisfied. And so that makes you angry. And that's where the text talks about uh, conflict with other people. That's where all wars come from, all arguments. It all comes from two different people having subjected themselves to do different things and saying, I'm going to do it my way. And then James talks about one last contrast, conflict, and that's conflict with God. Conflict with God. Strong language here. God uses the word adultery. And he says this doesn't happen overnight, like with my brother-in-law David. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of time. Uh, you've probably heard about how you can boil a frog. Anybody heard that? Yeah, some of you. Okay. Well, you, you don't put the frog in a pot of boiling water. He'll hop out, you know. But you put him in a pot of cold water and turn the heat up real slowly. At first, it's like a nice warm bath, and it's like a jacuzzi, but before long, the frog catches on that he's been boiled to death and you're looking for a frog leg recipe. And this happens to us all the time. 
people who drift away from God and begin to love the things of the world. And it's not just a matter of nurturing themselves from the things of the world. It's a matter of settling your affection on them, embracing them. The immediate payoffs feel good, like a warm bath or a jacuzzi. But before we know it, we're enemies of God. Jesus said we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to see ourselves as just passing through. Most Christians today are in the world of it, for it, and love it. But we have to be very careful that we don't want to be friends of the world, but we want to be friends of God. This is the final destination. Knowing God standing tall in him. It's where we find ultimate joy and satisfaction. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. He hates it when we embrace another. That's adultery. He hates it when we satisfy ourselves from the things of the earth that cannot satisfy. And he says, I will do everything. Listen to this, please. I will do everything to stand in the way if you have chosen to nurture yourself from the earth. And we think that God is our enemy. That's the way it feels. That's what the text is talking about. It feels like God is our enemy. Let me tell you an example. Those of you that have had teenagers, or those of you that are going to have them, be afraid, be very afraid. <laughs> we, we had two wonderful teenagers, and, uh, but they both went through their times of difficulty. And this scenario might sound very familiar to you. So your son comes home, and he smells of alcohol, drove himself home, or you find drug paraphernalia in his bedroom. And you have this deep fear inside your gut. And here's what the fear really is. Let me put a name to that fear. The fear is that your son or your daughter has embraced the world. Now, they're going to be influenced by the world. Can't help that. They're going to be tempted by the world. That's all. We understand that. But when you have this fear as a parent that they have settled their affection Lord, help us. Settled their affection on the world. They have embraced the world. There is a fear inside of you. And here was my posture at that time. I thought to myself, I will fight to stand opposed to my son. He will think I am his worst enemy. I will spit in his soup. I will do anything in my power to get in the way of him embracing the world and bending to the earth and settling his affection. He will think I'm his worst enemy. He will think I hate him. He will think I don't love him. But everything I do will become out of love and a, and a desire to see him stand up tall into Jesus. Does that ring a bell? That's exactly the way God feels. You think God will just let you kind of toddle away when you turn your eyes off of him and put them on the world? Do you think he'll just let you walk away and just have your own way? He loves you. He has settled his affection upon you. And he will not let you go without fighting desperately for you. And if you think you're going to find joy and happiness and prosperity by, by, by taking the earth and, and nourishing yourself from that, God will stand in your way and he will say, I love you too much to let you do this. This is the contrast in James. This is the picture I want you to go home with today. A person that is bent to the earth. This is, I am going to satisfy my soul from that which the earth provides. Or someone that is standing tall in Christ, fully nourished by Jesus. 
I'm afraid too many Christians today have married Jesus for the wrong reason. They've married him for the money. How do I find my way back? As we close, listen to these words. Verses 7 to 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Ten verbs. Submit, resist, come near, wash, purify, grieve, mourn, wail, change, and humble yourself. Humble yourself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, please? Father, this is a hard word this morning. All of us in our lives, we we know those times when we have literally bent to the earth and we have done everything in our power to nourish ourselves from that which is not from you. Just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and then I'll be satisfied. To those of us who have been there, and Lord, to those of us who are there this morning, you said, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I'm going to ask you a very pointed question this morning. Would you do me a favor right where you're sitting, no eyes opened? I would like you to close off everything around you. Don't even think about the people sitting next to you, what they're doing, thinking this is just you and God, you and God face to face. And in this moment, Jesus is saying to you, I want you to humble yourself before me and I will lift you up. If that's your prayer this morning, if that's your desire, I want to just give you a moment to just pray that prayer. Lord, I have been nourishing myself and sometimes I have actually settled my affection on the world. And I'm so sorry. I repent of that and I humbly ask for your forgiveness. And I invite you once again to stand tall in me, to help me to stand tall and firm in my faith. I just want to give you a moment alone with the Lord. Just block out everything around you, just you and God, and speak to him from your heart. Every eye closed. Close out everything around you. If you prayed that prayer, Lord, I humble myself before you. I want to stand tall in Jesus Christ. I I just want you to stand up. Don't worry about what anybody else around you is doing. Just stand up. Lord, this is my offering to you. This is my prayer to you. 
I stand up boldly in the presence of God. And I ask you to fill me up, to help me to stand tall, to help me to stand proudly with the life of Jesus coursing through me. I do not want to nourish myself from the earth. I do not want to embrace the things which are bait and not food. I stand tall in Jesus. And I do this in your precious name. Would you please be seated? Every head bowed, eye closed still. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that you have called us to be your children. And I pray for every person in this room that they would know deeply what it means to be married to the Savior. For I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.